All right, time's up. Let's go ahead and uh, grab our Bibles and or our phone or whatever you use, whatever kind of device. Um, I mean, I would like to say I'd, I'd rather use pages because I like to hear pages turning. But go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, we're continuing our series, Basic Christianity. We kicked it off last week, um, but we'll be um, in the series up until um, Advent time. And so uh, we're de definitely looking forward to um, walking through um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John together as we um, look at what it means to, to be a basic Christian. Um, and if you remember from last week, basic Christianity is not basic at all, is it? It's, it's a very radical um, way of life. Um, you know, one of the, the beautiful things about humanity is that we're all different. There's not two people alike in the history of ever that have the same DNA. We're all different. And it is actually a privilege for us, I think, that we live in such a beautifully diverse world. Because um, if everyone was the same, it would be pretty boring. If everyone thought the same, it would be kind of boring. If everyone acted the same, it would be pretty boring. It, but it is a beautiful picture of God's creative handiwork. Yet, even in the midst of that great diversity, there is one thing that we all do share in common, and that's sin. There's no escaping that. We're all born sinners, and we can't escape the grip of sin, not, not on our own, at least. We try and we try, but we can't. Uh, but the truth is, is that sin deceives us into downplaying its reality and its severity, right? So we, we try to act like sins are not as serious as they are or that they're not as um, severe as they are. But there's no denying the truth that we're all sinners and that sin is horribly bad. Sin has separated us from the holiness of God. And our only hope in being set free from sin's captivity is trusting in Jesus and surrendering our lives completely to him. And the main idea for the text we'll be in this morning is that sin deceives and separates us from God. But we are to proclaim the good news that Jesus is a gracious savior. And we're going to look at our text this morning. We're going to unpack this. And as we do, we're going to see the great truth of what it means to walk in the light. So I want to read 1 John 1, starting in verse 5, down through verse 2 of chapter 2. And then I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin to unpack it together. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come now to open your word together, and we pray that you will both bless the reading of your word, and that through your spirit you will speak to us the message of your word. God, we know that according to your word that we are to be transformed by this good news, by this gospel, that our lives would be led into spiritual worship for the glory of your name and for the good of us as your people. That we would find joy in who you are, that we would find joy in being your people. And this morning as we unpack these verses, God, we ask that you would meet us and that we would see the importance of walking in the light. So God, we ask that you would do the work that you are going to do here today. We come trusting that you have prepared us to be here. You knew who would be here before we ever woke up this morning. You knew who would be here when I was preparing this message during the week. You know what is going on in our lives. You know our hearts. You know our hopes. You know our fears. You know our securities and insecurities. And so we ask that your word, God, would just resonate deeply with us. That we would be made more into the image of your son, Jesus. For the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, we pray. Amen. So again, sin deceives and separates us from God, but we are to proclaim the good news that Jesus is a gracious Savior. Starting in verse 5, we read again, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the very first point of this text is that God is light. Again, verses 1 through 4 reminded us that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a figment of their imagination. He's not just a mirage, which is what a lot of this letter was fighting against. The, the false um, teaching of Gnosticism, which taught that Jesus, um, while he appeared to be there, it was just an appearance. It was more like a ghostly appearance, but he disproved all of that by living a very physical life and, and dying a very physical death and then rising as a very physical resurrected man. And so John is writing, attacking that, saying, no, that's not the case. Jesus is not just some figment of your imagination. He's not just some image. He's not just some lunatic man. He is God. And he's telling them that if we remember that, and if we start there, then we will live lives that are filled with joy as we're surrendered to our King Jesus. So John takes that foundation, 
that Jesus is God. And he's now encouraging us to not only hold fast to that truth, which is the truth of our foundation, but that we should go forward and proclaim it. I mean, what good is good news if we just hold it in, right? The good news is that Jesus came and that Jesus died and that Jesus was raised again to die in our place for our sins. But it's only good news as it changes us and it propels us forward. And so he starts, this is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you. But what message? The message is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the message of good news, that God is light. He is the epitome of moral perfection. This speaks to his nature and his character. That true life is in the true light of who he is. This is not the first time John has used this picture of light to speak of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And also in John 8, he says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This idea that God is light. Now notice it's not saying God is the light. It is saying God is light. Right. So again, this is speaking to his very nature and his character. He in himself is light. He's not necessarily just shining light. He is light. He's holy. He's pure. He's good. And the light of God is the light that leads to life. And so again, this message is that life is found, true life is found in Jesus. And then once that true life is found in Jesus, then those who have found him go and proclaim the good news to the rest of the world. That's why the gospel is good news, because it's meant for the world to hear. Listen to this quote from John Falconer. He says, I have but one candle of life to burn. And I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. What good is light if it's not being shown in the darkness? So he's encouraging his people, this church, to go, to tell the good news that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But not only is God light, but we must be aware that sin deceives. See, the fact that sin deceives is literally a tale as old as time. We go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve being duped into believing the lie of Satan. And they were easily duped into believing that lie because in their heart they had this nature to want to be as God. That's the nature we all harbor as well we want to be as God again because we all share that commonality of sin and one of sin's most divisive tricks is deception itself 
See, sin lies about its true nature and we quickly fall victim because our hearts long to be sovereign. People buck at the idea of God's sovereignty because we don't want to be ruled by anyone. We don't want to be surrendered to anyone. We want to be the master of our own universe, the captain of our own souls. Simply put, we want to be God. We desire to feel ourself by our own standards. We want to define our life in our own terms, in our own way. We don't want to be told what to do, or how to live, or who we are. But we must look to the scripture. What does the scripture say? Again, we believe that the Bible is the very word of God, that it is inspired by God, and it is without error. And if we believe that, then we have to believe that the that the message it is proclaiming is true, that it's a message about the glorious, holy, righteous, just God who is sovereign over all things. And that it directs our steps and it guides our paths. And so we must hold fast to what the Scripture says. And we live in a day and time where we want to deny the belief of Scripture. and We want to deny the truth and the teachings of Scripture constantly. Even in the church. Well, I believe this, but what does the word say? I don't really, I don't care, but this is how I interpret it. No, what does the word actually say? Do we really believe that the Bible is the word of God? Again, one of sin's greatest tricks is deception. So what does the scripture say? Let's dive into verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So let's break that. There's three different parts to that verse alone. So if we say we have fellowship with, with him, that means we're confessing that we are believers, that we're following Jesus, that we have given our lives to him, that we're Christians, and that we are people of God. But he says if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, so in other words, we're not actually living the life we're claiming to live. We're living a life contrary to that. We're not walking the life of a disciple. We're not living a life of a blood-bought Christian. We're actually living a life very contrary to that, even though we're carrying the banner of Jesus. So we're saying we're following Jesus, but we're walking in darkness. Our hearts are not filled with the light of God. The result, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So we can say we know Jesus all we want to know Jesus. And we could say anything that can come out of our mouth that would point people into the direction of thinking we are saved people. But what is actually in our hearts? What is actually taking place within? I think far too often what we see especially in our more southern culture where the thing to be is a church person, right? A Christian. We, we flippantly throw that label around, but are we walking in the light? Or are we lying and not practicing the truth? Again, we can say all day that we are something, but our lives tell the true story. 
Now, the, the interesting thing is, is when he says, while we walk in darkness, that's not just like a little stroll. That's this, a, this continuous pattern of life. If, if our life is constantly telling the, the story that we're not truly following Jesus, then the proof is in the pudding, right? Think about what Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Dead in sin. In other words, our lips can say that we know God, but for far too many, our lives are screaming liar. And so we really have to look deep within and say, am I living for the glory of God? Or am I simply calling myself a Christian hoping to receive some type of material blessing or some type of return? Because following Christ is not about receiving a return. It's about receiving Christ. It's about seeing the glories of God and knowing that I am his and he is mine. But the result of denying the seriousness of sin over time is that we become more and more and more deceived. But the response to verse 6, the flip side of that is what we see in verse 7. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. So if we're living in the light, then Jesus has cleansed us from sin and we have intimate fellowship with other Christians. So in verse 6, we're looking at those who say they have fellowship with God, but yet they're walking in darkness and they're lying to themselves and others. But the flip side then is verse 7, but if we walk in the light, that is if we're trusting God to lead, if we're trusting God to save, if we're trusting God to guide, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, we made this point last week. Do we desire to have fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters? Do we, do we love coming together with other believers, or do we constantly associate with those who are outside of the light? That's a very good picture of where our heart truly is. But those who walk in the light, as he is in the light, it says we have fellowship with one another. It's another good picture. How many times have we tried to invite people to church or share the gospel and, and they say, oh, I know the Lord, but I, have, you know, I don't have to go to the church to have a relationship with Jesus. Well, I'll throw the flag on that because Scripture is denying that very truth. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. Well, where do we get the word of God heard in 
preaching of the word and the singing of the word. If we don't have desire to have fellowship with other Christians, then we don't truly know Jesus. And we go into verse 8 and he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So again, the longer we deny our own sin, the deeper those roots grow until we actually get to a point where we believe we're without sin. I mean, we might still say, oh, I mess up occasionally, but, but we've completely denied the serious nature of our sin. And we're not necessarily looking at it as sin any longer. It's just mess ups, right? We are completely deceived and completely twisted in our thinking and our understanding of what sin actually is. I mean, the simple definition of sin that, you know, we kind of learn in Sunday school and VBS and stuff is that sin is literally missing the mark. As an archer misses a target, so sin is missing the mark of God's standard of holiness, right? But when we begin to just see those as just minor mishaps and not sin against a holy God, that twisted belief begins to take root in our life and we just completely begin to dismiss and ignore our own sin. And one of the practical implications of that and, and, and the practical ways we can know when that is beginning to take shape in our lives is when we're quick to point out the sins of others without acknowledging our own faults and failures. Now I'm not saying, and I'm not going to misuse the, the verse of judge not lest you be not judged because we have a tendency to misuse that quite often, right? We need to look at the lives of brothers and sisters to be able to nurture each other and lead each other towards holiness. But we also have to be very aware of the own, our own sin and our own life and turn to Christ who is the forgiver of sin. So again, everything within us and our nature, our sin-stained, our sin-marred nature screams innocent. That's simply not the case. And God's word clearly reveals that we are all sinners, that we're all stained with sin and full of guilt and shame. And as sin begins to deceive us and we begin to dismiss our own sin, then we are developing even more and more and more pride within to the point that we get to where we think we have no need for Jesus at all. Because if sin's not serious, and if I don't have sin in my life, why do I need to be saved from it? But the truth is, is we all desperately need Jesus. Because it doesn't matter how deceived we become, it doesn't change the fact and the truth that we're still sinners. It's kind of one of those things we can deny all day long, but at the end of the day, our denying doesn't make it untrue. We're still sinners. We're still marred by sin. And we still desperately need a Savior. So how then can we be freed from sin's deceptive shackles? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so how do we find freedom confess confess our sins not conceal our sins and there's a big difference a lot of times what we 
say our confessions of sin are more or less concealments. We might confess a little part, but we don't release the entirety of the story, and so we're concealing that, right? Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. It's a long one, but it's a good one. Right? It's a Spurgeon quote, so it's got to be good. right? I wish we had in our building fund a dollar for every time I made a Spurgeon reference or a Spurgeon quote. would be in a lot less trouble, right? <laughs> Spurgeon, right here. says, the idea of having no sin is a delusion. You're altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you. And you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. And you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives. Or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. So in other words, if we say we have no sin, we're just living a delusion and we apparently have completely not looked at our own life. We're all sinners. And Paul later in Romans in chapter 6 says the wages of that sin is death. But graciously, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So if, verse 6, if we lie to ourselves about who we are, then what we see in verse 8 is then we will begin to lie to others about who we are. And then verse 10, we will begin to lie to God of who we are. He says in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not. So do you see the, the downward spiral? We begin to lie to us, ourselves, and then we begin to lie to others, and then we quickly begin to lie to God. And to say you have no sin means you have no need of forgiveness of that sin, which then denies God's word, which in his thought process makes God a liar. Because the word has clearly pointed to the fact that we're all sinners and that we all desperately need forgiveness from sin and that Jesus is the only way possible to be forgiven from that sin. So if we deny even the, the least bit of sin in our life means we deny the whole shebang. So the question for every one of us is, has sin so deceived us that we've made God a liar? Sin deceives. It's true. But it's not the end of the story. Because the end of the story is that even in the deceptive, deceptive nature of sin and the horrible nature of sin and the horrible effect of sin, there's hope. There's hope because Jesus 
saves. Look at verse 2. I mean, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, the good news is that no matter how deceived we are of sin's damning effects, nor how far away from God we feel, there's hope in Jesus. He starts here, my little children. This is actually a term he uses several times throughout his letters. It's this picture of a spiritual father or like a grandfather looking out for his children. He desperately wants to see them in a good place. It's his fatherly affection. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He cares deeply for them. He cares deeply for the church. And he's writing with such angst and such passion so that they may not sin. He wants them to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants them to experience the joy in knowing Christ and being known by Him. He wants them to understand the grace and mercy that Christ has shown to them in giving of Himself. He wants them to know true peace in Jesus. Now, of course, we will not be sinless in this life. We won't be sinless until we're glorified. That's what Romans 8 teaches, right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. But, as we walk in the light, as we're pursuing Christ and seeking him, in pursuing holiness. We won't be sinless, but we will be able to sin less. We'll not be perfect. But we'll find joy in the process of following Christ. It's a lot easier to fall into sin's ensnarements when we're not walking in fellowship with other believers. We need each other. We need each other to keep ourselves accountable, to encourage, to speak hard words when hard words need to be spoken, to speak soft words when soft words need to be spoken. And we see, we see the, the sense of John writing to the church, my little children. How is he doing it? He goes on, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, even when we fail, which we will, we have an advocate with the Father. And I love the, the way he writes this. He doesn't say we just have an ad, advocate with the Father in Jesus, but he goes a step further to say we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the only one righteous. And as we see Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5, in his death, he gives us his righteousness as he takes our sin. Beautiful exchange. 
Because our righteousness isn't in us, it's in Jesus. So what this points to is the fact that even in our sin, no matter what we try to do to appease the wrath of God, no matter how many good works we do, no matter how much money we give, no matter how much time we give and how much we serve and how many church services we attend and how many times we go to community groups, and no matter how, none of that matters, ultimately. What matters is whether or not we have trusted Christ. Now, once we trust Christ, all of those other things begin to happen naturally. So it's not works that lead to faith, it's faith that begins to lead to work. It's not a righteousness of our own, it's a righteousness that comes through Christ. That's why it's the blood of Jesus that covers a multitude of sins. That's why Jesus says in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way. There's no asterisk to that. It's not Jesus plus anything that equals salvation. It's Jesus only and it's Jesus always. So then the question is, is but how can Jesus be our advocate? Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So how can Jesus be our advocate with the Father? Propitiation. Which means an atoning sacrifice. He has given his life. That is that Jesus, in his death on the cross, bearing the sin of all of his people for all of time upon himself, has satisfied the just wrath and punishment of God. That is what you and I deserved God received in Jesus. We can't downplay the serious nature of our sin. And the only way we'll understand the serious nature of our sin is when we see the holiness of God. We miss that a lot. As we see God as who He is, arrayed in His holiness, His splendor, His majesty, then we understand the gravity of our sin. I've not just sinned against you when I sin. I've sinned against the holy creator, sovereign God of all things. And this punishment meant for that, rightly so, is death. But instead of me dying, Jesus died in my place for me. You know, there are people who rage against that thought that God is horrible because he would destroy his own son for others but Jesus death in our place for our sin is all part of God's purpose and God's plan in 2 Corinthians 5 Paul writes in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And I just want you to just think about that for a second. It was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, Father God, to crush his son for you and me. 
works. This is the power and the beauty of the gospel. We try to avoid words that we don't understand sometimes like propitiation. And we try to play it off as being something else. But there's no escape in the reality that we were sinners. And Christ died to save us from our sin. To the glory of God the Father. To fulfill the plans of God the Father. Listen to this quote from Danny Aiken. He says, The work of atonement accomplished by Christ on the cross is where God's holiness and God's love meet. Where God's judgment and God's mercy kiss. Yes, it pleased the Father to crush His Son and put Him to grief. And it pleased the Father to highly exalt Him and to bestow on Him the name that is above every name. And this is the message of the good news. This is the message that John is writing to the church. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all that even if we're deceived by sin even if we fall into sin's deceptive traps we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness why because he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world meaning this is a message to be taken to the ends of the earth We have a call. So let us search our hearts and not fall prey to sin's deception. And let us run to Jesus, who is our advocate and our savior. And may we walk in the light as he is in the light to the glory of God and for the joy that we find in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks That you would put your son before us to be the propitiation for our sins. And may we find hope in Jesus that he saves. And may we quit looking to the lies that sin tell us that we can achieve righteousness by doing this, 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 and this. And that we can continue to live the life we want to live. And that ultimately it will work out in the end. No, God, remind us. Spear us with the truth that we desperately need Jesus. And without Jesus, we have nothing. So may we find rest and hope. Savior and King. God, may you today wreck some of us in here who may fit the bill of we say we have fellowship with others, but we're walking in darkness and we're making a liar of ourselves and of you. And may those who fall into that, may the walls of the deception, deceptive nature of sin be torn down in their lives and may they come run into you to confess their sins and know that you are faithful and just to forgive and to 
cleansed from all unrighteousness. May we quit playing games and may we truly rest in the grace and the hope of King Jesus. We ask all of this in the glorious name of our gracious Savior.